I'm Evan Smith of the Texas Tribune, and this is Point of Order, a podcast about the ins and outs, the ups and downs, the people and politics and traditions of the 87th Texas Legislature. This week, the state of COVID. The first coronavirus case in Texas was, if you can believe it, not quite 11 months ago. How can that be? The public health emergency feels like it's been with us for so much longer, especially when you consider the toll it's taken here in that short time. More than 2 million confirmed cases and nearly 300,000 additional probable cases. Hospitals and particularly ICUs filled to the gills. And more than 36,000 deaths, not to mention the impact on employment and the economy, public and higher ed, and nearly every aspect of our lives and livelihoods. Across the U.S., the number of confirmed cases tops 26 million, with more than 440,000 deaths. And there's no end in sight, not even with the availability to certain people in certain groups of several different vaccines and more on the way. It looks to be quite a while, perhaps six months or longer, before mass vaccination is possible and a return to something approaching normal is on the table. How did we get here to this extraordinary and unprecedented moment in history? And where are we going? With state leaders set to grapple with the consequences of the outbreak in the 2021 session, I wanted to ask those basic questions of this week's guest, Dr. Peter Hotez, the leading virologist in Texas. Dr. Hotez is the founding dean of the National School of Tropical Medicine at Baylor College of Medicine in Houston, where he is also co-director of the Texas Children's Center for Vaccine Development. Throughout the pandemic, you've not been able to turn on the news or read an op-ed page or doom scroll through social media without seeing his name or conjuring the image of him we've come to know. Tucked into his office, always in a bow tie, often in a lab coat, a mix of calmly reassuring and bracingly candid. He's our version of Dr. Anthony Fauci, ubiquitous, expert, and apolitical to the extent that anything about the coronavirus is apolitical these days, and with the understanding that being apolitical is not the same as not having a point of view. Dr. Hotez definitely has one. He's been a crusader for years, for instance, against the flat earthers who reject science and recoil at vaccines, a fight he always believed was his responsibility to wage, but never more than now. Indeed, his next book, soon to be published, is titled Preventing the Next Pandemic, Vaccine Diplomacy in a Time of Anti-Science. In the middle of his typical tornado of a schedule, with the cable TV bookers breathing down his neck, Dr. Hotez kindly talked to me on the morning of Monday, February 1st, day 21 of the 140. Point of Order is supported by Texas Biomed, a nonprofit infectious disease research institute whose sole mission is advancing health worldwide. Visit txbiomed.org to learn more. And by the Texas Medical Association, working to improve the health of all Texans. Get the latest COVID-19 information at texmed.org slash coronavirus. And the Hobby School of Public Affairs, 
Why are one third of Texans saying they won't get the COVID vaccine? Go to uh.edu slash hobby for answers. And Blue Cross and Blue Shield of Texas, proud to support this conversation because public dialogue and civic engagement are important and play a role in improving the health of Texans. If I told you a year ago we'd be where we are today, would you have believed it? I, I tell you, I never, well, you know, if by year, as of a year ago, we actually knew about COVID-19. We knew the emergence of the virus. I think the, the, for me, the shocker is how, as a nation, we let this get so profoundly out of hand and couldn't organize ourselves to uh, launch a national control program. Was that something that you could have predicted, though? I guess if you go back a year ago, understanding that the disease was going to take the, the, the path that it took, would you have imagined, though, I guess, that we would have allowed this if it was more in our control than not, would, that we would have allowed this to get to this point? Well, you know, I think there are two, two major surprises or three major surprises. One was the fact that, you know, when, when this first emerged, we thought it was going to be like the other uh, pandemic coronaviruses, SARS and MERS, which were primarily respiratory viruses, number one. And number two, if you got sick, um, if you got the infection, you knew it. You were sick. You were not out and about in bars and concerts. You went, you were in bed or in the hospital because it was such a severe illness. There was not that asymptomatic shedding. So that was, that's what's been so deadly about this virus, not just the, the fact that it's a killer, but the fact that there's this whole group running around with asymptomatic infection. That Janus face of the virus has been what's been so problematic. And then um, the way our federal government responded with uh, denial and downplaying the severity of the pandemic and calling it a hoax and then event and then refusing to launch a national strategy. So the two big fail failures of the administration, the White House, were one insisting the states be in the lead and the federal government would provide backup support. That was a that was a, a non-starter from from the beginning. Uh, that was never going to work because the states don't have that the epidemiologic tools to know how to do this. And second, then when the information disinformation campaign came around, that was really awful. And that's when I really had to uh, um, uh, call it out and disentangle uh, the science from the politics. So to me, the the three big pieces of this were um, the, the asymptomatic transmission and then the two major White House actions or inactions. And of, the, and of the latter two, one of them was a sin of omission, not really doing anything in terms of taking the lead. But the disinformation campaign was something actually active. It was a sin of commission, right? That, that was something that, the, that a decision was made somewhere along the way to put bad or wrong information out. Yeah, no, it was deliberate. And uh, and I was in some ways, I think I was the first to see it because I've had that experience. You know, Evan, we've spoken over the years about my going up against the anti-vaccine movement, which is so powerful right. in Texas. And uh, I, you know, I like to say I can smell a dis anti-science disinformation campaign a mile away because of my experience. Uh, my experiences here. And so I was the first to really pick it up and, and label it and call it out. And I think that was really important. I hope it's saved some lives. Yeah, well, we'll I want to come back to the anti-vaccine stuff uh, here in a, in a little bit. But let me ask you, staying on the subject generally, the number of cases and the number of deaths nationally, you know, we've almost become desensitized to seeing these numbers every single day as they tick up and up and up. 
Are you surprised by the magnitude of this? I mean, the, the number of cases and the number of deaths is really something that in our lifetimes we've never seen and never could have imagined. Yeah, that, that's right. Uh, the uh, Not only the deaths, but who's dying and the way we've uh, allowed our most uh, vulnerable populations to, to to bear the brunt of those deaths um, and how we've allowed this virus to rip through low-income neighborhoods unimpeded. Uh, also, the fact that, hey, this there's more to come, and maybe we'll talk about that. We're in a right. bit of a downturn now, but the, the there's another big piece about to hit us. Yeah, well, I'm almost afraid to ask you about that. Um, uh, when you look at Texas compared to the nation, again, Texas is obviously disproportionately large. Um, we have a very large population. When you look at our deaths and our cases relative to the national case count and death count, do you look at Texas and think we're pretty much where we ought to be or we're better off than where we should be or worse than we should be? I think we're worse than we should be. We had, there's there's nothing to be proud about uh, in our track record of COVID-19. I mean, we've more or less led the country in uh, cases and deaths being at the top one or two. Right. But is that a factor, doctor, of the population being so large or is it not just that? Um, I think it's a bit more, um, you know, I mean, if if you look at the pattern of the cases and deaths, also it's it's kind of interesting, um, you know, because people compare us a lot to California, and now the numbers are kind of equivalent. And California, of course, is larger, but that's but let's assume for essentially they're about the same. What happened was we were doing much much worse than California for most of 2020, and then right. uh, what? And California looked like it had been spared the brunt of the epidemic and then something happened over the over the last month January and the first and last two weeks of December that things just really accelerated so you know California wasn't even much of a problem in many ways even though it had been one of the first places where it emerged Texas was so much worse now California is caught up a bit for reasons that I don't quite understand so you don't know if it's that California did something wrong in the last little while or if just things accelerated there or if we did something right. I mean, I'm trying to understand what the how did we change places in that way? Well, it could be because of uh, a variant that emerged out of California that, you know, we don't know that everything, you know, everything moves so fast. Right. We, right. Don't, we don't know. We right. don't know. So that may be a right. possibility. But, you know, I mean, just look at our state uh, more than uh, two million cases. Uh, and and remember, that's that's an underestimate. Because that's the ones we know about for sure. That's the confirmed that's, cases. That's exactly right, because we've learned that we underestimate it by around four to one. So we may be close to eight to 10 million Texans who are in, infected and, you know, a population of uh, third th rough getting roughly 30 million, 30 million. You know, you're looking at a fourth or a third of the, the population. State. And right. then, uh, and then the deaths, which are just so awful, um, and uh, you know, and also probably Doctor Hotez undercounted, we're, right? Undercounted as well. If the if the cases are undercounted, the deaths are undercounted. Probably. So we're we're approaching forty thousand deaths, and uh, just to give you the uh, comparison of that, um, the number of Texans who sacrificed their lives in World War II is half of that. Um, the number of Texans who fought in the Civil War and lost their lives was between three and twenty thousand, so way less than half were 
you know, the the Galveston, the horrible Galveston flood of 1900, that was 8,000. So we're looking at what could be argued to be the worst catastrophe to ever hit the state of Texas. And, and again, we've become a little desensitized to it, right? Because the slow ticking up of these numbers, we ought to be more horrified, mortified. We ought to be more alarmed by what we've done and haven't done, right? But those numbers don't seem to be sinking in for a lot of people. Yeah, unless, you know, maybe it's because it was amortized over the course of a year. People right. have gotten desensitized to it or seeing it on the news. <clears> it's it's and, a frog in boiling water, right? Yeah, and, you know, and but, but the truth is now we're at the point, uh, and this is where things become very destabilizing, where everyone in the state of Texas will have known someone who's been severely ill, hospitalized, or even have lost their lives from COVID. Right. And that, to me, that's when it, that's when it morphs from a um, public health threat to a homeland security threat. And, and that's, that's where I'm worried we're headed. You know, doctor, the, the big conversation, which in some respects is irrelevant because the time has already passed us and the consequences of the consequences, is the degree to which this was and is preventable. And the debate seems to take place along three different paths. One is this is entirely about government action or lack of action. A second is that this is entirely about personal responsibility. And the third is kind of the this is God's wrath argument, that there was nothing that anybody, government or any of us individually, could have done to fix this. Which path are you on or is it a combination of those three? Well, I'm trying to strike a balanced view here. First of all, um, this is a really hard virus to fight for that simple fact that you've got half the people infected uh, walking around being asymptomatic. I, I don't care who's in charge. This is going to be a challenge and no one's going to look good. All right? I think that's that's important to 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 put that put that down. Um, I, the thing that I would have liked to have seen happen more in Texas as it did in some other places, is when our emergency rooms and uh, ICUs started to get overwhelmed, that's when we had to take more aggressive government action. Because we learned pretty early on in this pandemic back a year ago now, back in February, March, and April from Southern Europe and Spain and Italy and then New York City, is that the deaths go up when when hospitals get overwhelmed. And now we're seeing this in the UK as, as well. And when ICU staff, and it's not just the beds, because as my, my boss, one of my bosses, Paul Klotman, always says, you can always convert a regular bed into an ICU bed, but you can't make up in a hurry as a, a trained nursing staff and trained train hospital staff. And that's when things get overwhelming very quickly. And that's when people start to lose their lives. Is, and so the lesson there is as you see surges, especially in some of the bigger metropolitan areas, like we've seen in El Paso and Lubbock uh, this year or in down in South Texas, that's the time when you do have to start shutting things down uh, for, for temporary reasons. And, um, and too often, that's not what we've been willing to do. So if I had to say what I, one thing I would have liked to have seen differently, it's, it's that. Um, but no matter who was in charge, you were going to see significant loss of lives. Could we have cut that close to 40,000 number in half or less? I, I think yes. I think that's possible. Right now, you know, everything's changed with the release of the vaccines, and that's got to be the new focus now. Yeah. Is the, getting the people of Texas vaccinated as quickly as we can ahead of the new variants coming. So let, let's so let's come kind of walk walk up to that question of the vaccine and the, and the variants. Let me ask you though to comment on the basics as the first step 
Um, basic stuff, Dr. Hotez, that it, it seems like we shouldn't have to be talking about 11 months into this. Do you have any doubt in your mind that masks work? Uh, no, ma masks work, and we need masks and social distancing works. Um, they're, right. they're crude approaches, but they seem to have a big impact. So, so the, the, the sort of fashionable thing now is to say, I, I, I'm going to wear two masks. I'm going to do this double. Do, do you think we need to be doing that, or is one mask sufficient? You know, before I was vaccinated, I uh, and even now I, I wore two masks. Uh, I think it's just an extra layer of protection because you don't know if there's a tear in the mask or yep. quality of the mask you have. But look, you know, I still, you know, I live in uh, my, my, my wife and youngest daughter and I live together in, in Mont the Montrose section of Houston. And, you know, I'll take a walk with Anne early in the morning or at night and um, especially walking along all the cafes on Westheimer. Avenue, you know, no, no one's got masks or very few people have masks. So it's still even a single mask still has not, you know, really entered the, our, our culture yet. Do you have any sympathy at all for the argument that mask mandates are an inf uh, infringe upon our liberty or our, our choices as people? I mean, the, the argument that some make is if I want to be stupid enough to to make this choice. It's my choice to make. And I don't want the government or anybody else telling me that I need to be putting a mask on because I'm not persuaded. I mean, look, I was watching a, a, a conversation play out last night on social media. The former state senator, Connie Burton, uh, from the Fort Worth area, uh, who, who was uh, in conversation with Donna Howard, the Democratic representative from Austin. Connie, Connie Burton posted a video of a doctor, a guy in a lab coat, at least, who was saying, I don't necessarily believe that masks work. And we're actually still 11 months in having this debate back and forth about whether masks work. And it's conducted entirely along the lines of don't infringe upon my liberty. Any sympathy for that at all? Uh, sympathy, sort of. But but in the end, condemnation. Um, you know, I love I love living in Texas. We've been here a decade. It's been the most productive time of my life. I think some of the most interesting people I've ever met live in the state of Texas. Yep. And uh, and we've had this discussion, Evan. I I'm of the believer that some of those intellectually curious people I've ever met live right here in the state of Texas. It's mm -hmm. it's a kind of state that flourishes in the arts and literature and the sciences, but there's a dark side to our state as well. And that dark part of that dark side is manifested uh, through this uh, health freedom, medical freedom movement that really accelerated here in Texas around 2014, 2015. And when, um, you know, the leadership of Texas, ever since I've known it, has always been very pragmatic, you know, very not not too ideological focus on solving real life problems. But somehow um, this concept of medical freedom, health freedom has taken hold and it aligned itself to political extremism on, on the far right and linked itself to elements uh, of that here in Texas. And it first manifested as parents withholding vaccinations from their kids. And this is when you saw Texans for Vaccine Choice uh, Political Action Committee form in 2015 under the spanner of health freedom, medical freedom. Right. And that's that devastating consequences. Now we have 72,000 kids denied access to vaccinations because of it. Uh, measles outbreaks, and we'll see more of that. And, that. and that's what we know about. We don't know anything about the 350,000 homeschooled kids we have in the state of Texas. So we easily have over 100,000 kids not getting their vaccines. And that's when I really 
took this on because here I am a vaccine scientist, pediatrician, and a parent of an adult daughter with autism, you know, because they have claims that vaccines cause autism. And if I don't fight that, who will? So I fought, been fighting that fight. And and Texas Tribune, by the way, has been really good in, in, in you know, helping, you know, get that word on. I deeply appreciate it. But then what happened... Evan was in 2020, that anti-vaccine movement morphed again under the spanner of health freedom, medical freedom, and began protesting masks and uh, social distancing. This became a full-on anti-science movement. And then you had, you know, all of the major thought leaders, and I'll put that word thought in quotations, in around health freedom, medical freedom, either or already in Texas or moved to Texas, especially in the Austin area. So you had Alex Jones and then um, uh, other leaders of the anti-vaccine movement come to Austin. And so this has become sort of the headquarters of health freedom and medical freedom. And I'm saying, no, I mean, this is costing lives. And right. And you're saying that not just as a Texan or as a parent, but you're saying it as a medical professional. Yeah. You're, you're, you're bringing that. you're bringing the receipts on this. Yeah. I mean, I, you know, all all year I've been about saving lives and um, and, yeah. and 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 we should talk a little bit about that, because, you know, when I had to disentangle the disinformation campaign, from the White House, the accusations were I was just against Trump, and I said, "Look, I had nothing to do with that." And, and in fact, you know, I've been uh, I've been going out of my way to go on conservative news outlets to talk to everybody. I've been going on Newsmax and Fox News and the Daily Caller, and I've been going on the African American radio stations. And it's, and it's not about it's not about and, politics, right? And, it's not about and politics. by the way, I've not I don't you know I've I've been uh, I know on MSNBC and CNN lately saying there are things that the Biden administration is should be doing that they're not, and that's also interesting. That's right. by many as a as a betrayal. That how could I, after all we've been through, to now criticize the the Biden administration? Yeah. Really criticizing, saying, look, there are things that need to be done to save lives, and and hopefully at in, at the end of all of this, it'll it'll I'll I'll come out okay. You know that someone who was really fixed on on one thing, saying that you know all all lives have value and and um, and all lives are worth saving, and and I don't care what your ideology is, I'm going to try right. to save your life. Let, let, let me ask you, uh, again, sort of a couple more practical things, and then I want to get into the vaccine discussion. Would you be sending your kids to school today? If you had kids the age of public school uh, uh, students, if you were a parent of young kids? I, I'd feel, I feel better now than I did in the fall, and I'll feel better next fall than I do now. And, and the reason is because the, the thing I worry about sending kids to school is not so much the kids. I worry about the teachers, the staff, the bus drivers, who we saw this in New York City, so many lost their lives uh, in the early days of COVID because those are the ones who are getting sick. Then the kids are bringing it home. So there's no question kids are transmitting this virus. And um, there is some level of morbidity, but the, the real thing that worries me is all of the the adults who are getting sick. And if we can get enough people vaccinated, I would feel better about going to school. I think the other surprise in this, you know, I was last summer, uh, I was advising teachers about and, and superintendents and principals about how to set up the plexiglass and how to do the social distancing. And, but I always had to end those conversations. You know, I have to tell you my honest 
feeling. You know, you guys are doing everything humanly possible to stack the deck in your favor and to try to get through the school year. And I think if you were in part of the country that had low transmission, we will get away with it. We'll be okay. But when we had that screaming high level of transmission over the summer, you remember in Texas in the, in the early fall, right? I was, I was really worried. It, it turns out things did go better than I would have predicted. Um, so I think those measures that the teachers took uh, really, and I helped a little bit with, really made a difference. Yeah. Um, but, yeah. But now, but now, you know, I hate to say this, with the new variants coming, all all bets are off. We haven't seen how the new variants really right. behave in a school setting. So I'm holding my breath yet again. Does that uh, uh, extend to restaurants and, uh, and then beyond restaurants to bars? You know, there's been some discussion, at least where I live in Austin, that the hospitalizations have been down. Maybe some of the capacity rules can be relaxed on the basis of, uh, of slightly better numbers. Are, are you confident that, I mean, because again, you talked about the, um, the reopening of Texas earlier and the potential for this to be posed as a choice between the public health public health on the one hand and the economy on the other, as if those things are, are either or as opposed to sequenced in a proper way or both and, right? Yeah, the, the only, the only, you know, I recognize that life ha has to, has to go on and, and people, not everyone can afford live, losing their livelihood. Not everyone could live, you know, like many of us do, uh, doing things through Skype and Zoom. Um, but the, the, but the focus had to be when when we were seeing those big surges on the ICUs, and if we're not seeing that right now, I think you know we this may be a window period when when we can have restaurants open. I don't know about the bars. The bars are always going to be problematic until everybody's vaccinated, just because everyone is such close contact and right loudly over music and doing things that people do in bars. But um, but you know the restaurants and other businesses. I think y yeah, but but with an asterisk, and the asterisk is we're seeing a, a decline right now. So nationally, we're down about thirty percent for new cases a day, from two hundred fifty thousand new cases a day, which really means a million new cases a day to one hundred fifty thousand, which is still pretty high. If you know, I remember having hearing about Dr. Fauci's apocalyptic prediction of one hundred thousand new cases a day, and now we're down to 150 and we're feeling good about that uh, right so, yeah. yeah yeah well the definition yeah. of the apocalypse has definitely changed right. over time right. but, yeah. but and so if there's ever a time to start opening things now is the time but it's the variance the variance it's, it's the variance yeah it's so, so um i read david lanhart in the times this morning new york times this morning saying and we're talking on monday the first that you know people want to say that <clears throat> the vaccine is not effective enough and that the news is not all good his argument is no, the vaccine news is good, that the point of this is not to eliminate the coronavirus completely, but to turn this from a pandemic into a normal virus. The issue isn't no infections. It's a material a, a change in hospitalizations, deaths and long term complications. He's presenting the vaccine news up to this point, generally speaking, as positive. You agree with that? Yeah, I do. I think um, the vaccines look, you know, giving a pretty robust level of protection, especially when we use it in in two doses. And we have a recombinant protein vaccine that we hope is um, meet, meets that. Uh, right. the, 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 the issue is this. Um, if we can vaccinate the U.S. population, and the, including the population of Texas to the point where we can halt virus transmission. And our estimates indicate about 75, 80% of the population. It's a pretty high bar. 
Yep. Potentially, we can get ahead of the variants and pre- and prevent the variants from taking taking us over. That's the argument, right? That we have to. We're in a race. You've said this. I think you're actually quoted in the Tribune today saying this: that we're in a race between vaccinating versus the emergence of these variants. And that's, so the question is, right. if we can get out ahead of it, then we're then we're in a good place. And unfortunately, that shifted the timeline because I was saying late last year in the beginning of this year. Um, therefore, we have to if we can get uh, fully vaccinated by the fall, I think we'll we'll be OK and life will get gradually better. Now, you know, we have to call an audible again using the football metaphor, um, going up to the line of scrimmage and seeing things don't look right. We're going to have to make a quick change. Right. And the quick change is getting the population vaccinated. Right. Uh, by by, say, June one. And and that's where I tend to depart from what the Biden people are saying that we from now. They're they're still kind of sticking to the older timelines. And, and I'm worried about that. I think this really needs to, we need to accelerate. Things. Accelerate this. Yeah. And it's well, a you- really high bar. I mean, if you look at, you know, again, 30 million Texans, if we want to get the three quarters, 24 million Texans, say over six months, you know, you do the math, right? That's four million a month. That's uh, that's eight million doses a month. Uh, the numbers, you know, we're talking about twenty, thirty thousand uh, Texans. No, two hundred, three hundred thousand Texans every day, and, and we're just not close to we're, that. We're not on the pace of this. So let me ask you about the Biden stuff because you've mentioned a couple times that you don't see uh, the pace of this going the way that it, it needs to. I saw a Dr. Michael, Michael Osterholm, who, you know, like you is an infectious disease expert. He's at the university of Minnesota. He's been a transition advisor for the Biden administration on meet the press yesterday. And I believe you actually were tweeting a bit about the Osterholm comments yesterday too. He said that he thought the deadlier UK variant of COVID is going to become the dominant strain in the U S and what Dr. Osterholm said was the surge that's likely to occur with the new variant from England is going to happen in the next six to 14 weeks. And he actually said, sounds a little bit like what you're saying, that the U.S. needs to move faster to get the first doses of the vaccine in as many people as possible to fend off a bigger crisis from the variants. He compared the consequences of not doing this to a Category 5 hurricane making landfall. So it yeah. sounds like, at least from his perspective, he's with you that we need to do this faster. Yeah, we, we differ a little bit. Um, by the way, for full disclosure, Mike and I are on regular Zoom calls every week. So we're talking on our, okay. on our, with a bunch of other colleagues. So we're talking every week. And um, and yeah, I mean, I think we're both in agreement that the, the this could be a very apocalyptic in terms of this new variant, the way it's, it's coming, the way it's surging uh, and the way it will surge across the country. And by the way, we don't even know how widespread it is because we've so underperformed in terms of genomic testing. That's one of the other ways our national response has come up small, but, um, but it's clear that this is going to happen. I think the only way where uh, I differ a little bit from what Mike is saying is he's of the opinion to uh, not give second doses of the MRNA vaccines to everyone, just sticking with a, a single dose. I'm not impressed enough with the performance of that single dose to make that call. Instead, I've been saying, look, don't don't play, uh, don't screw around with the the mRNA vaccine. It's a good vaccine in those two doses. But now let's accelerate bringing the others on board. Uh, bring you know the the others meaning the other vaccines. That's correct. So right. the uh, the uh, European Medicine Agency, the EMA, just uh, approved the AstraZeneca Oxford vaccine for release. We've, we're sitting on, I believe, tens of millions of doses on that. We're ready to go. We should also 
release that. Um, we need to move on the J&J vaccine, the Novavax vaccine, and then our vaccine. You know, we're not getting any help uh, coming from BART or the U.S. government about how we bring our vaccine in from India. And I think if we could bring on those four other vaccines in our right. heart, we can make a huge difference. What do you, what do you think rather, about rather the, than, yeah. Rather than playing card tricks with the, with the mRNA vaccines. What do you think about the categories that we've established for access to the vaccine, the prioritizing of people in you know, 1A, 1B, and so on? Do you think that we should be getting more people outside those categories vaccinated? Are we doing this properly, the prioritizing? No, I, I, I understand the 1A, the healthcare providers and the and the nursing homes. That made sense. From then on, I think the the guidelines are too fussy, and if we're really going to accelerate vaccinations at the scale that I'm suggesting, as well as Mike is suggesting, yep. those rules just become a barrier. They're too confusing, and you know you, we we spend too much energy pointing fingers at each other about who who or who ordered the turkey club and who ordered the salad niçoise we we we, we don't have time for that yeah. and i think we've got to do a mind adjustment here and a reframing and say look we're in crisis mode we have to open up the hubs whether it's community health centers like the bayou center that we opened here in houston or you know some of the big venues some of the sports stadiums yep. we need to do this high throughput and anybody who wants to get a vaccine should have to get a vaccine and i don't even see quite honestly the logic of uh, all of the computer sign up and password protected codes forget about it we're not you know this is make it easier just make it i mean make it yeah. dumb make it so that somebody wakes up in the morning and say hey you know maybe i really should get vaccinated it's just like voting right it's like when that week of voting you know you well know. don't don't compare how easy texas makes it to vote to how oh, easy yeah, you want yeah, it to, be, to get right. vaccinated you, you, you want to kill all of us right um uh, look the president said last week that he intended to purchase 200 million more doses of the vaccine that was said by the president and celebrated by the administration as this massive advance. Is that ambitious enough? Well, but, you know, then he said by the fall. And um, right. I said, what? I said, it, it's, know, it's, it's not magnitude, it's timetable. Yeah. And then I said on, I think it was MSNBC, I think it was with Nicole Wallace. I said, you know, that's like, you know, waiting for the glaciers to come back down from Quebec. And then, of course, only on Twitter, right? I get all these tweets saying, hey, Dr. Hotish, you know, Quebec doesn't have glaciers. So. Right. You're, you're not a glacier expert. <laughs> Stay in your lane. I get that. Yeah, right. Yeah. yeah. Right. Yeah. Um, you, meant, you, you mentioned earlier that you got a vaccine. Yes, I did. Uh, how, how, how long ago? Uh, I was one of the first to get vaccinated. So it was made available to uh, Texas Children's Hospital healthcare workers. So um, uh, in December, I got my first dose and I was fully vaccinated uh, uh, by the beginning of January. Which vaccine did you get? I got the Pfizer vaccine. But I would, have, I would have taken any of them, uh, quite honestly. I mean, right. you, have, you, have, you, have, you have confidence. The point is that you have confidence in these vaccines enough that you were not going to choose between one or another. Right. And, I have and I have confidence in our FDA. Uh, they've, they've made, you know, they really rebounded. Right. I mean, Stephen Hahn is from Texas. Well, right. And Stephen Hahn got an enormous amount of crap in that last yeah, period of the yeah, administration, actually, didn't he? I, I think it was, you know, he walked in there and he, he walked into a maelstrom and, and, um, and had some initial stumbles as anyone would have walked into that situation, but he really rebounded well. Yeah. And 
he, you know, he, he, I was really proud of the way he right. conducted himself and the way he stabilized the FDA. He, I think in the end, he did a terrific job and to the point where I wouldn't have mind seeing stay on in the Biden administration. But did, did you, uh, let, let's go back to your vaccine, the vaccine that you got. Did you have any ill effects, side effects, anything, consequences of the vaccine? Yeah. And the second dose, uh, about 24 hours afterwards, I had, you know, I had shaking chills, maybe some fever. Um, yeah. And that's okay. That's how you know the immune system is working. So, so is it wrong to talk about that? I mean, there was a criticism for a while of of media reports of people who took the vaccine, one vaccine or another, and oh, well, you know, this was the consequence of it, and it it had the effect. Some thought of dissuading people from doing it. It made people more nervous. Well, if there's going to be these effects of it, I'm not sure if I want to do it. Is it right or wrong to talk about it? It sounds like you're saying it maybe is right to talk about it, but it's an indication that it's working. Yeah, you got right. to you've got to talk to the American people, and this has been the problem uh, with Operation Warp Speed. It was a good de- I mean, right. problems. It was a it's a development program that somehow led the American people to believe it was more than that. It was actually going to bring in the army and the national guard to start vaccinating, which that didn't happen. It was sort of dumped off on the states. But the other was there was never a communication strategy. It was left to the pharma CEOs who were very poor communicators. Yeah. Or to the anti-vaccine people. So there really was no communication strategy. And, you know, I did what I could, you know, going on the cable news networks. But but you're one guy. One guy. And, you know, at the end of the day, I'm a medical school professor. I'm not a, I'm not working for the U.S. government. So, yeah, um, there wasn't that accountability there either. So right. I think we need to that has to be fixed as well. So on the anti-vaccine question, which you brought up a couple of times, I mean, after all, it is your brand to talk about this, understandably. Um, this weekend, I noticed that there was a uh, mass vaccination site at Dodger Stadium in Los Angeles that you probably saw in the news was shut down Saturday afternoon briefly because there were anti-vaccine protesters gathered at the entrance. I mean, th- this is kind of the, the place we are where even if we're attempting to give people access to the vaccine, people who say, I don't want the vaccine, don't, are not willing to simply say, I'm going to opt out myself, but they're trying to actively prevent other people from being able to opt in. Yeah, this is um, this has become now a full-on national anti-science movement. And, it, yeah. and unfortunately, it actually started, uh, you know, where I'm looking, I've been looking into the history more and more, and it really started in Orange County, but it, it mostly amplified here in Texas. Um, especially in the Austin area. So, uh, you know, this is a homegrown movement. Yeah. But now there are other elements to this and it's getting real. So now in the last year, there's been now links to QAnon. That that worries me. And now you're seeing the Russian government weigh in. So the Russian government has now put in this systemized progress, systematized program of what we're calling weaponized health communication, where they're flooding our internet with fake anti-vaccine messages. And so this has become a very complicated. Yeah. And now what was, you know, a kind of a small fringe movement coming out of political extremism out of Texas is now a full on empire or confederacy that extends now into Western European capitals and the Russians and, and nobody's really standing up to it or combating it. I mean, I've been writing about it and calling it out. I had a major paper out in plus biology right uh, last week to kind of go into some further details, but it's, we're going to have to do something about it. Here are the consequences of it. So we're talking today on Monday, the first, by the time people hear this tomorrow morning, the second, There'll be a new University of Houston survey out. We've had an opportunity to preview it that says that 
nearly a third of Texans who responded to their survey either definitely or probably won't get vaccinated. So we're talking about, I mean, you called out earlier the need for herd, what I guess is popularly known as herd immunity, right? Where some high percentage of people are vaccinated. And, and as a consequence of that, we feel like we can begin to return to normal life. So you've got a third nearly a third, 32%, who say definitely or probably won't get vaccinated. You and I both know, Dr. Hotez, 25% of the population in Texas is under 18. Most of those won't get a vaccine. How do you get to the numbers if there's that much resistance and if the demographics set up the way they do, can we really achieve that goal? Yeah, I mean, this is a, a big worry. You know, I'm, I think as, as more and more people, Texans get vaccinated and people see their friends and colleagues and coworkers get vaccinated. I think some of that will melt away, but not completely. We did a survey, a similar type of survey. Uh, and I did this, I was led, I was part of it, but it was led by my colleagues at Texas A&M at the school of public health and their social scientists led by a guy named Tim Callahan. And Tim's our study found that um, we identified two groups that are extremely vaccine hesitant. And, and what was interesting about it was there were the same two groups that independently the Kaiser Family Foundation did a survey two weeks before found. And so our number one vaccine hesitant group that we found were Trump voters and what um, uh, the Kaiser Family Foundation found called Republicans. And then number two were the African-American community, and they found the same thing. So, I mean, talk about two diametrically opposed groups, you know, sort of meeting around vaccine hesitancy for different reasons. So what's the basis of that? Well, the Trump voters slash Republicans, I think, is is bred out of that whole health freedom, medical freedom movement yep. that we're conversation with. That's all coming out of there. The African-American community, uh, you know, I don't know fully, uh, you know, some are saying calling it historic and structural racism, you know, in the legacy of the Tuskegee experimentation that ended in the early 70s. No doubt that's true. But the other piece that I point out that not many are aware of is that the anti-vaccine group specifically targeted the African-American communities in 2019. They held a series of high-profile rallies in Harlem called the Harlem Vaccine Forum and even had one at the, at the Riverside Church on the Upper West Side in New York, which is one of the iconic churches in the civil rights movement, Reverend Sloan Kaufman. So I think there's some deliberate targeting there going on. But so that's what I'm doing now. I'm going on African-American radio stations. Right. And, and uh, I just did one with uh, D.C. Cofield, who's one of the pastors in one of the big churches here in the third wards. And then I'm doing Newsmax and going on all those places. The interesting thing about the Newsmax interview was it, it really came down to the anchor's concern, and I'm assuming that's reflective of maybe the conservative community about mandates. Again, getting back to this health freedom. Right, this, but it's been in the, politi the political aspects of it. Worse yeah. on us. And I said, look, uh, I don't know why we're going there. It's not that we don't even have enough vaccines to vaccinate the people who want to get vaccinated. Nobody's talking about mandates at this well, point. Well, yeah, the numbers don't allow you to do mandates. I mean, just go, go back, though, for a second. I want to we're going to wrap here in, in a minute or two. I want to go back, though, to the African-American community in Texas, which, according to an AP study this weekend, is behind as a percentage of its population, the percent, the, the, the degree to which uh the, the va vaccines have been out. I believe the study in the AP said that in Texas, uh, the black population is about 13%, but 
but only about 7%, a little bit more than 7% of the vaccinations have been in the black community. So the black community is not being vaccinated relative to its population size. I saw this morning a suggestion that part of the problem here is that we're, and you alluded to this earlier, that we're making people sign up to get the vaccine on the internet where we know that broadband access in communities of color is way be below what it is in white communities. Or we're making uh, people get the vaccine through pharmacies, but pharmacies are not as evident in communities of color as they are in white communities. I mean, it may be more structural issues like broadband and access to pharmacies, right? Oh, yeah, no question about it. I mean, you go drive through the fifth ward or third ward and you know, Big chunks of those areas are pharmacy deserts. There's nothing there. Yeah. So, and we can't really solve that problem overnight. That's not well, a problem that can be fixed. Yeah, because I think we have to open up, and I've been talking with uh, Representative Sheila Jackson Lee about it and, and, and others in the African-American community. And, you know, opening up some vaccine hubs there is going to be really important. I've spoken with, with Mayor, yeah. Mayor Sylvester Turner and, and the county judge, Lena Hidalgo. So they get it. So that they are addressing that here in Houston. Um, how it's how that's going on the rest of Texas, I, I don't know at this point. Yeah. All right. So last thing I want to ask you, Dr. Hotez, and I appreciate so much of giving us this much time, is if the we, we talked about whether at the beginning of the last 11 months were preventable as far as it goes. Are the next 11 months preventable? And what does the picture look like if we don't take the various steps that you think we need to take, you know, you've got a doomsday scenario, presumably, or different scenarios. And then tell me what the most important things people should take away from this are in terms of how to avoid those doomsday scenarios. I think the doomsday scenario is the variants take over, as Mike's been saying, and I've been saying, and, um, and the deaths double. And we get from 400,000 deaths to 800,000 deaths. And that is a very plausible scenario. In fact, I think that's what's going to happen unless we take really dramatic measures. And the dramatic measures is we've got to get vaccine out to the American people. And, you know, it's not a, it's not a, um, an if, or, you know, I don't know if we can do that. You know, we have to, you know, Evan, in 2020, we became soft as a nation. Um, we became a country that became was afraid to do hard things. We always looked for easy solutions or called things a hoax. And we have to become a nation again where we're willing to do hard things. And, you know, we, this is the country that defeated fascism in World War II and communism in the Cold War and put people on the moon and def helped defeat AIDS. And we have to we have to do this. And I'm tired of people giving me a hundred reasons why something can't be done. This we can, and, and this is what we need to do. You've been listening to Point of Order, a proud member of the Texas Tribune's family of podcasts. Thanks to our guest, Dr. Peter Hotez, and thanks to the sponsors of this episode, Texas Biomed, the Texas Medical Association, the Hobby School of Public Affairs, and Blue Cross and Blue Shield of Texas. Be sure to check out the Tribune's deep coverage of the 87th legislative session at texastribune.org. And if you like what you see there or hear here, tell your friends about us. Until next time, I'm Evan Smith.